Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. This is our gratitude season where we're showcasing and celebrating and talking with and about our team members. Hello, Mariana, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> So today we have Rihanna McIntyre, who's one of our archaeologists working at the Bowser office. And so Mariana is here. Mariana, I wonder if you wanted to introduce yourself. Um, sure. Uh, my name is Mariana, and I am coming to you and very grateful to be on uh, Qualicum First Nations land. And I love living here. It's a great little town. And I'm here with my family doing some archaeology. So one of the most shocking things that I learned when um, my husband, Tony, and I moved to Bowser eight years ago, and we joined the fire department, right? We joined the volunteer fire department. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and we met your husband, Jay. Yes. And he said, my wife is studying archaeology. And I said, this is a tiny, tiny town. <laughs> what are the odds that there would be an archaeologist like 100 meters from the place I want to set up? <laughs> Yes, you wouldn't. It was pretty amazing for me to find out that there was even an archaeology office so close. Uh, so so close. it was awesome. So close. Yeah, it kind of it kind of worked out really well. So um, one thing that I'm trying to collect about our team is origin stories. And I wonder if you would kind of give your origin story and how you found your way to archaeology, because you've had you've had a few careers and a few roles in your life. I originally went to school for history, and then I realized that history wasn't quite right for me. I, I wanted more um, like a scientific field. It's the humanities versus social sciences debate, isn't it? Yeah. And then <laughs> so I just kind of was like, I don't know if history is right for me. I uh, took some geology courses, and I had a teacher that was a geoarchaeologist, and then so I started taking archaeology with him as well. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's like history and science all put together, all together. in one nice little package. And then off I went. In between, I had kids and moved from Vancouver to Powell River, Powell River to Bowser, worked in hair salon and a bank and did all kinds of things. Did the real estate course. I was going to be a real estate mm. agent. So. I, didn't, I didn't know that. I learned yeah. I learned something new about you. Yeah. Uh, so I went back to school when my son was one. So 2001. And I graduated in 2019. You did archaeology. You studied history. You, you went to Vancouver Island University, right? That's where you graduated from? Yes. And, but you also did GIS. I did. Uh, yeah. So during COVID... Obviously, the world came to a stop, <laughs> or just about. And so I thought we weren't working too much. There wasn't a lot going on. Uh, I did go back to school, and I did an advanced GIS 
diploma at VIU again, and it was all online. And so I did that from 2019 to 2021. Right. And so one of the things that we've really appreciated about you is this idea of being a Renaissance woman. You have all these different skill sets that you pull in and you've been so adaptable because, you know, archaeology can be quite seasonal. And so there'll be downtimes in between projects. And so you've also been helping us uh, behind the scenes with some administrative and accounting roles, which has been really awesome. Not my strong suit, as, <laughs> as we all know. So it's nice to have someone who can do that. But um, you're firmly now on the archaeology side and have been working on a bunch of different projects in Vancouver and in southern BC. And then, of course, there's going to be a lot of work this season throughout the province, which we're Mm -hmm. shipping people off for. So it'll be pretty great. Yeah, I'm super excited about the next field season and just Mm -hmm. all the new things that I'm going to be learning It's just going to be a different type of work than what I did last year. So I'm really excited about that. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting time to kind of come up in archaeology. So like you and I are contemporaries. We both have kids where we both uh, are about the same age. You know, we live in Bowser. We have the same environment. Um, But, you know, you are a bit newer to the discipline of archaeology and you're coming up in your career as an archaeologist right now when there's a lot of changes going on. So, you know, public is becoming more aware of the damage that archaeology can do and and has done historically. And we're also seeing a lot of ground swelling support for the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And so I think that's kind of an exciting time to be entering this field that intersects with those so much, right? I was teaching a class recently where I was talking about how archaeology is at the forefront of these discussions, because in BC, we don't have very many treaties, hardly hardly any at all. So there hasn't been an equitable framework uh, that has been created for things like title and rights and access to materials, improving occupancy for strength of claim. And archaeology is being featured in those discussions an awful lot. So I wonder if you can kind of speak to how this social and political environment that your career is being oriented in, how that's kind of impacted how you view this as a profession. Has it made you excited to engage in it? Has it made you nervous? Or kind of how has it set it up, knowing that uh, there's these serious ramifications from this career that you've chosen? And I hope you're not being scared away from as we talk Oh, that's a big question. I do think that it has affected the way I view archaeology because a lot of my early exposure to archaeology and where my interest came from was more ancient, the early hominids, the physical archaeology, bioanthropology, uh, forensic anthropology, Egypt, and like the really old stuff is what got me interested. But as you kind of progress through school, like maybe today more so than when you were doing your undergrad, there is definitely a different kind of political legal piece that you have to learn about and understand. And working in BC is very different because it's not ancient, ancient where you don't have living relatives or someone that's going to come up to you and be like, that's my grandmother or my great grandmother. 
Right. You know, we have the dis- we have the descendants of people like right here. Um, yes, that, exactly. And we're studying the ancestors of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's interesting, like when I think about the things that interested me and I started out in archaeology, the work I'm doing is very different than what I thought I'd be doing. Mm. Just as important, though, if not more important, because, of course, we are taking care of heritage and culture of very, very existing peoples. (laughs) I also worked at the archaeology branch when UNDRIP and the whole truth and reconciliation thing was coming about and the government was trying to figure out how to deal with that. And obviously this is an ongoing slow process, unfortunately. I worked there before I graduated. So by the time I graduated and started working in archaeology, I did second guess because I was like, there is a lot of things going on, a lot of things that need to be taken care of. It's just a lot more sensitive um, than it used to be when I was working at the archaeology branch. It's like, wow, it's more than just the archaeological discipline. There's politics, there's legal, there's cultural heritage. There's all these First Nations that just want to be a part of everything because they should be, yet they're not able to get through the door. And so even though we're trying to make all these changes, it just seems slow. It just seems like even though everybody is talking about it, the action isn't following. Mm. And I don't, working at the government, it was really eye-opening too to see actually how hard it is to get things done because there's so many levels of people. Mm -hmm. There's so much, this needs to be approved and then that goes to this person and then that needs to be approved and then it goes to the next person. So it's not just as simple either as being like, we need to do this. And I don't know you know, how to fix that or change that because government's been working in a certain way for so long. And it's just like this very, this needs to happen. This needs to happen. This needs to happen. This needs to happen. And then it's like, oh, we need to go back to the table and make changes. And then this needs to happen. And, you know, so it's just very slow in an environment that I think needs to be maybe not so slow. You know, when I started doing archaeology and we started to consider archaeology more than just what was in front of my face, like not just what was on the end of my trowel, but what was the context that I was operating in? I became really frustrated with government. Um, And I don't have the insight that people have who have worked in government. But I'm hearing, you know, from people that I talk to now that 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 slowness has facilitated a level of care that's important but I don't necessarily see that on the outside. And I see, you know, the slowness. I'm like, is it working? Are they roadblocking? Are they stalling? And so it's it's so interesting to get that other insight. And you're not the first person who's said this to me. Like there's like a level of care um, that's going on. But I know it's not that straight cut either. I do think you touch on a very important point. I do think there is a level of care there. They don't want to make any rash decisions. And I think that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I do know that when I was working with people in the government, they were also frustrated because they do care. 
and they do want to see changes happen, but it's just this framework. But I did meet a lot of people that were also frustrated because they do care and they do want things to get better and they do want to see things change and that taking it slow does mean that there aren't any rash decisions because it's hard to go back and change something. You know, if you change a piece of legislation, that's not easy. And then if you make a mistake, then you have to go through that whole process again, right? You're between a rock and a hard place, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah. But it it did make me question, do I want to do this? Do I want to be in this field that is like exciting but also sad. So what was it that made you question that? Like what part of it made you question that? I felt like I shouldn't be an archaeologist Mm. because there are other people that should be taking care of that work, like First Nations peoples. But then at the same time, What you have to understand, sometimes there isn't enough archaeologists to get all the work done. So then I was like, kind of looked at it more from a helping point of view instead of like a taking point of view. And I also feel like I do care about First Nations. So if I'm operating as an archaeologist, I know that I will do the best that I can to take care of their culture and heritage the best that I can for them or with them at whatever opportunities, you know, I have. You and I are totally aligned on these points, 100%. And I'm wondering, you know, is this something that's simply learned? Is it something that's already in your heart? Is it something that's being taught in school? Like were these discussions that were happening between students and instructors, you know, who were entering their careers in this field or considering a career in this field, I'm trying to figure out if if these very caring and sensitive views of archaeology that understand the ramifications, if there's something that can be taught, or is it something that has to be experienced and felt? I do think I learned a lot of that in school, and we had a lot of discussions. There was work going on in Vancouver on Musqueam land, and they were protesting, and they went on the uh, Burrard Street Bridge and blocked traffic. 2010 at the site of Cessnam. That's right. Which is um, underneath the Arthur Lang Bridge. But the protests were all across Vancouver, including the Burrard Street Bridge. Yeah. So we watched a lot of footage on that and listened to what First Nations had to say. And I guess it still makes me emotional. <laughs> that just never should have been happening to to my mind, to my point of view. I actually worked on that project in 2010. I don't know if I ever told you this story. No. It was very impactful. So I was an independent consultant at that time, and I was taking various contracts. And I was approached by the archaeology company who was who was doing their work at Cessnam, and they were looking for more archaeologists. And they said, did you want to come on as a contractor? And I said, yeah, okay. And I was still learning about the Vancouver context for archaeology. I'd been doing a lot of my work in the North and didn't understand a lot of the nuances and the history of archaeology uh, in Vancouver. 
And I lasted 10 days and left crying and never went back. So it is a very emotional project. Mm -hmm. And like the things that I saw, I can't ever unsee them. And it really showed me where my comfort level was. And it helped me to define where my ethics were, uh, seeing what was happening and absolutely not being okay with it and, and saying, I will get, I will find a contract somewhere else. Yeah. So we saw a lot of things like that. And I decided that I didn't want to be an archaeologist unless I'm helping. I just want to be an active person in moving First Nations rights in the right direction. Yeah. So in terms of applying that in your work and in terms of helping to move that ethical needle, how do you know when you're doing the right thing? So like, where is that bar being set for you? Uh, My gut. (laughs) If it doesn't feel good or right, it's probably not. But I also have had a great privilege of working with First Nations in the field. So just talking with them and just getting to know them and their stories, you can't top that because you learn so much. And so, you know, sometimes people on site might look at me to ask, you know, archaeological questions. You have, you know, a First Nations representative right here. Let's see what they have to say too. You know, I'm here and I'm an archaeologist and I'm working and yeah, I can answer your questions, but let's not forget there's more people here than just me. Um, that have a lot of valuable information, way more than I do, about their territory, about the history, about what we're looking at. That's just kind of my short-lived career so far. Those are just kind of just little things <laughs> that it's I just try and the do. beginning. <laughs> it's, it's I think it's a super exciting time to be like coming to the field. And I really enjoy talking to earlier career archaeologists with this like enthusiasm and I'm finding like people like yourself, for example, are so much better informed than I was at that stage of my career. I just wasn't as well informed. So it's kind of an interesting time to be talking about this topic because, you know, I think for quite a few years now, archaeologists have been grappling with how to improve their discipline. It doesn't feel right. There's like things that we do that just feel icky and we're not exactly sure where they're not feeling right. And we're trying to improve it, but it's often been this ad hoc process of like project by project, you know, what can we do better on this project? Or I'm going to have this conversation today. I'm going to um, push back uh, in the permit language. I'm going to seek an opportunity to talk to the client about why what they're doing is not right. But we haven't always had the top-down support. We haven't had legislated framework that is supporting those bottom-up ethics and those like independent application of ethics. And so I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because right now we're undergoing a process of transformation. The Heritage Conservation Act Transformation Project began in 2007 and is really picking up speed in the professional sphere now. So the province has been engaging with practitioners and interest groups, including academic archaeologists, including consulting archaeologists. And there's an also an additional, from what I understand, very robust consultation process happening with First Nations, which is outside of the professional academic consultation. 
Now, if we think about this, this is actually a huge deal, right? So we look at our Heritage Conservation Act, which is actually rooted in things such as the Indian Act from the 1920s. Uh, we get our own heritage legislation in the 1960s, and ultimately we get the first iteration of the HCA in the 1970s, which doesn't really change much until the 1990s. And then between the 1990s and 2019, nothing really changes for 20 years. But it's in that time frame, coming up to 2019, that archaeologists are feeling really icky about this process. And so now we're in this transformation project. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if we can kind of reflect upon uh, what we're hoping for that transformation project and some things that we'd like to see. I know you had some ideas um, related to First Nations autonomy and sovereignty over their own heritage. During this time of transition and just learning about UNDRIP and just realizing that I'm pretty sure there is no situation where any First Nation has a veto where they can, in their comments, say, no, we don't want this project to go ahead and then that project dies. So I don't know how the logistics of a veto would work. I don't know what that looks like, but I feel... That idea is also meaningful consultation. I'm hoping that in this transition and with changes to the HCA, and I know UNDRIP is a huge thing, is that maybe in there somewhere there is more control or more power in some ways given to First Nations when work is being done in their territory, whether it used to be a sacred place in the past or things like that. I just feel like empowering them or allowing that meaningful consultation, like maybe they get more time if they don't have the resources. I feel like the meaningful is not so meaningful, perhaps. In some cases, if not all, there should be that ability to veto Say there was a known burial ground, I think that they should be able to say, no, you can't do anything there. I want to talk about this because I find that this is pretty interesting. So there are some elements of what you're talking about already exist in our heritage legislation, but the gatekeepers of that are the province. And that's kind of one of the challenges. So I wouldn't say that there's veto power, but what there is, is permits get sent to First Nations, as you mentioned, for a review. And they have between 45 and 60 days for a review, mm. depending on the agreement that they have with the province. And so there's an opportunity for nations to say, you know, we don't like this element of the permit or, you know, we want those methods change. We don't want hydrovacking, for example, but it's not a veto. And so this is why I find this topic so interesting, because I'm trying to imagine what would that look like? What would it look like if we didn't have the regulator as the conduit for that information, for First Nations preferences and feedback? And what if instead permits were to go directly to the nation and they could have a lot of control over the format of them. They could indeed have veto and so on. And so I'm kind of been thinking about that quite a bit. I think you raise a really good point though, in that 
this will only be a blue sky idea unless there's capacity funding that is given to support like an office to do this and train staff and recognize the right uh, that nations have to do this meaningfully in a, like a self-sustaining model um, and to improve economic reconciliation as well. But I want to talk a little bit about this veto idea. We have such a complicated um uh, land ownership here in BC, right? On Vancouver Island, where we are, it's all private land. We don't have very much crown land. In the rest of the province, there's a lot of provincial or crown lands. And we don't have very many treaties. We just have a couple. And so one of the interesting things in BC is that there's overlapping First Nations territories. And so I wonder if we can kind of spitball the idea of in cases where there's First Nations territories that are overlapping, how can archaeologists support those nations in being able to have those decisions that might not agree with their neighbors uh, in neighboring territories? So, for example, if there's two nations, Nation A and Nation B, and they're over overlapping territories, and Nation A wants to veto, and Nation B doesn't want to veto, well, that's, that's uh, an interesting point. <laughs> um, it's, a huge, it's a huge challenge. Maybe that's an internal treaty between the nations and how they deal with permitting and access to the shared lands. And I think probably all sides would want things working together for the benefit of everyone. So something like that would be good to do now, maybe while the HCA is also being like do out. The, the front end work, right? Have yeah. those conversations yeah. ahead of time. Yeah. I agree with you though, in that it's a nation to nation discussion and not something that like the archaeologists would be walking into um and trying to make those decisions, right? I mean, if mm -hmm. we're there to support and if we're in support of um, heritage sovereignty for descendant communities, that means we have to give up those power uh, roles and those decision-making roles. And we have to be comfortable with stepping back and realizing that there's going to be some larger historical frameworks, such as nation-to-nation uh, -nation relationships that we have to give space and time for, right? Like, I think one of the interesting things is as we acknowledge that people have been here for thousands and thousands of years, the same people have been living alongside each other, cooperating, competing, whatever it might be at different times. It's been a very dynamic relationship. And this idea that, you know, descendant communities are just sitting there without any agency and are these static models, we need to kind of change that idea and give space for whatever historical relationships and frameworks already exist, those have to be able to play out, right? I think yeah. anything else, anything less than that is just patriarchal. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And this relates to the value of heritage. So the question I'm going to ask is related to, is there a limit of heritage value? This will make sense in a second. So if a nation wants to veto a project, for example, because it's running through um, a very sensitive 
bit of land, let's say um, it's a, a culturally sensitive area, is there a certain type of project that no one, regardless of their status as descendant or non-descendant community, should not have veto over? Like, are there just important projects that should trump or does heritage value and cultural sensitivity trump everything? I know that I'm asking you some very hard questions, but these are the things I, I'm genuinely curious about. I do think it is probably a major trump over most things. Honestly, the only thing I can think of that would be more important, it would be like from a safety point of view. Mm. Not just easier for travel. Sometimes for safety reasons, we have to do things that suck, but it keeps people safe. If it was for safety, maybe you don't get a veto, but I don't think there would be a lot of situations where that would be the case. I do feel like culture and heritage at this point would probably be more important than anything just because of the history of it not being important Mm -hmm. for how long it's been overlooked and unimportant. It needs to be at the forefront. I think there are a lot of people that don't understand the past still. I still get people saying, oh, you're an archaeologist? What's archaeology? Isn't that Egypt? All of BC is an archaeology site. Even with everything that's been in the news, what's happened to First Nations in this country. And I'm just like, what? How? How is this like in 2023 still like people don't know or don't understand the importance or the impact of so many things. And so I would put culture and heritage before everything else. To my eternal shame, I didn't even realize that residential schools were in Canada until 2006, not in any widespread way. I just didn't understand that, it, which is shocking, right? I was a university student at that point. Uh, so I, you know, it's not like I wasn't exercising my privilege and going to post-secondary education where, you know, these things should be talked about, but I I never learned about it uh, in school at all. And and it didn't, when I eventually learned about it, it wasn't at the university. So it sounds like we're talking about a few different things. We're seeing that archaeologists have long been dissatisfied. I think we can say now many archaeologists, not all, uh, have been dissatisfied for quite some time with the framework that we operate within. Um, Of course, First Nations have been dissatisfied by the trauma that they have been experiencing related to colonization of their heritage as well as lands and institutions. Um, And we just haven't been listening for a long Mm -hmm. time. It's not like those discussions haven't been happening. We Exactly. I had to take the wool out of our ears. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about how public and industry as well are learning, but they're slow to learn, right? The public don't necessarily know that, you know, um, as you said, BC is a land that has been lived in for a very, very, very long time before most of us got here. And so what can we do And what would be the power of helping the public to understand this truth about where we are? If people 
understood, like for real understood, what kind of past First Nations have had to deal with and what they are still dealing with. Helping people understand, I think, would help all these changes be acceptable and maybe happen quicker. As far as industry goes, I think that's a super important piece for them to understand because industry is always building, it's always moving, it's this like machine. And I feel like it's always been, oh, that's like a box they have to tick. Oh, we have to do the archaeology or talk to First Nations and they tick the box and carry on with their machine of people and If they start to really understand all of these ideas and how it affects everyone in the picture, maybe people reach out to First Nations before it gets to the permit stage. Maybe business and people like just go and talk to the First Nation that they're going to be working with or whose land they're operating with. Go talk to them. Start the consultation, start the meaningful conversation before you need a permit, before you have to go through the government, before you need to deal with the legislation and get to know each other. You know, we talk a lot about building relationships. Well, you don't have to wait for a permit and the government to start a relationship. In fact, that's a really terrible time to start. Exactly. (laughs) So I feel like helping people understand helps those things happen. And those are important pieces to kind of, you know, I'm not saying leave the government out, but kind of, if you already have a relationship with the First Nation, then the permit is just ticking the box. The nation knows that's coming their way. They know exactly what to expect. They've already had conversations. They know what's going on. They're not in the dark. And I think for a lot of First Nations, That is like one of the important pieces. They don't want to be in the dark. They want to be involved. Even if they have veto power, it doesn't mean they're going to veto everything. It just means they're more involved. They have a say. Their voice is being heard. And they're being acknowledged as such. Exactly. Exactly. Which is super key. And I think also, you know, part of those discussions with the public and industry, there has to be a tangible and explicit acknowledgement that we are all benefiting from a system that has not benefited everyone. Like Mm -hmm. my success as an archaeologist, industry success as whatever industry they're in, even elements of the public success in having waterfront property and certain types of jobs has all been on the backs of this process of colonization. And we have to recognize many people continue to benefit from that process of colonization. And until we call that out and call it what it is, we're not going to be able to fix it. And just like everything that you were saying, it all starts with a conversation, having a conversation about those things. I think getting to know people is so important. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they're amazing people. And we should all be talking and getting to know each other and respecting each other's histories and really just embracing the fact that they were here before we came along and they had a life and they had a way of living. It's like when you play a game and you have all your pieces on the board and someone just comes along and flips the game board, you know, and all your pieces go everywhere. And that's essentially 
what happened and they're just, you know, trying to collect their pieces and feel whole again. I just think these conversations need to happen. I agree. Yeah. This is a very exciting time. So this is going to be part of an ongoing discussion. So maybe you could come back and talk about it a bit more. Yes, I would love to come back and talk. As it <laughs> as it develops, I think will be really good. And I have to say, I mean, I'm obviously biased about our team, but I'm so fucking excited seeing like early career archaeologists coming up in this time and responding to these things. I'm pumped to see what the next like five, 10 years is like. I hope I can participate, but I also know that sometimes archaeologists have been in the game for a long time. The best thing we can do is step aside. So we'll see what happens kind of as, <laughs> as we go forward, but I'm really excited to see what's coming next. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Mariana. Bye. Bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.